This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to another discussion on The Mosaic, where we explore topical issues through in-depth analysis, commentary, and discussion. From social justice to music and art, we're covering it all to highlight the unique experiences and opinions of our diverse community. Today is Prisoner's Justice Day, so we're discussing the significance of this date and what's going on in Ottawa. We'll hear from a mother whose son is in prison and how she co-founded a support group for family members of incarcerated loved ones. I'm Lauren Rolston, and this is The Mosaic for August 10th on CHUO 89.1 FM. CPAP is hosting a vigil at the Human Rights Monument on Elgin Street today until 2 p.m. The vigil will hear from speakers on the conditions of correctional institutions. This is part of an annual peaceful protest to bring attention to the harms and inhumane treatments of incarceration. Prisoner's Justice Day has been around for almost 50 years now. Here's CHUO's Anna-Sophia de la Parra offering a closer look at where Prisoner's Justice Day began. This day emerged as a solidarity movement by prisoners as a commemoration of the death of Eddie Nalen on this date in 1974. Nalen was left to die alone in a segregation unit in the Millhaven Maximum Security Penitentiary. The following year, in 1975, was the first Prisoner's Justice Day. The inmates in Millhaven refused to do work and went on a hunger strike while also holding a memorial service for Nalen. The inmates knew they'd be sentenced to solitary confinement, and many of the alleged leaders of the movement were still serving said sentence a year later. A year later, in 1976, after the first official Prisoner's Justice Day, Millhaven residents issued a communication calling for a one-day hunger strikes in opposition to solitary confinement, which had already taken the lives of two prisoners, Nalen and Robert Landers. Since the Bill C-83 was introduced and passed as a law in 2019, this bill replaced administrative and disciplinary segregation with structured intervention. This means that legally, solitary confinement no longer had any plausible stance. Under the new law, Inmates needed at least four hours a day outside their cell, and two of those needed to involve meaningful human interaction. However, in 2022, eminent criminologist Professor Emeritus Anthony Dube and Professor Jane Sprott described how the state of solitary confinement painted a bleak picture of the Correctional Services of Canada and their willingness to reform. This is due to the fact that even though Bill C-83 abolished it, it still exists in many correctional institutions. Both professors have stated that society stands to gain from a more humane rehabilitation system, as the goal is for those people to be able to reintegrate into their communities. Today, 48 years after the first commemoration, community groups consisting of former prisoners, loved ones and supporters are organizing demonstration against state violence hoping to bring attention to the harm and damage that is done through incarceration, which include abuse, inhumane treatments and death. August 10th is a movement to reach people about the lack of leadership that has prevailed in the rehabilitation institutions, such as prisons, and how, on paper, Canada shows the ability to approach this in a humane way, yet it has not been shown in the system nor in the eyes of these communities. That was CHUO's Anna-Sophia de la Parra on the beginnings of Prisoners' Justice Day and the conditions of correctional facilities in Canada. Solitary confinement has been abolished, yet reports have shown that some prisoners still experience the method of isolation. The correctional investigator says the situation for Black and Indigenous people in Canadian prisons hasn't improved 10 years after a landmark investigation. They found the prisoners experienced discrimination, racial bias and labeling, while also experiencing disproportionately worse outcomes in sentencing. Inmates with mental health concerns are also overrepresented in the criminal justice system. 
Farhat Rahman is an advocate for prisoners' rights. She'll be speaking at the CPEP vigil today. Her son is one of the inmates in Canada's incarceration system struggling with mental health. His imprisonment led to stigmas and isolation, so Farhat founded a support group for family members with loved ones in the system. I spoke with Farhat about her son, her advocacy, and the support group Mothers Offering Mutual Support, or MOMS. Here's that conversation. My name is Farhat Rahman. I'm a co-founder of the group Mothers Offering Mutual Support. It's a support group for women like me who have their loved one in Canada's prisons or jails. I want to get talking about moms and how that came about and Prisoner's Justice Day, but I also first wanted to talk about what your son was like before he was incarcerated. Well, growing up when he was a very small preteen, he was doing very well in school and was a hard worker. And in his middle school, at a parent-teacher meeting, the teacher said to me, his writing skills are so exceptional that only every five or six years we see somebody with that kind of skill. So this, I've never forgotten that. He was focused on his education. And when he was in high school, one term, he got a 70% on some English or some other mark. He put himself through summer school to upgrade that because he always wanted to get higher than average, like an 80% or above. So he was totally focused and he would look at the ratings of universities And he had his eyes fixed on McGill University. We lived in Hamilton, Ontario. So he had his eyes fixed on McGill University that was voted the best university. And so he was a very academically, and even at home, he wasn't no um, outward emotional uh, problems that, you know, that we could think of. And so we were blissfully going about in our way until his teenage years, when he turned 15 or 16, I would say, that there was a there was a drastic change that I found in him. You know how I would go to his room and a typical teenager, the clothes, most of them would be on the chair and uh, not put away in closet or anything like that. But uh, suddenly I remember going into his room and finding the room was so clean. It was like very uh, shockingly so. Things had put away, bed was clean. And after that, he started to take very long showers. Like we only had one bathroom and my mother-in-law lived with us and it was quite challenging. And he would take upwards of a half an hour and uh, we thought nothing of it. And my ex-husband thought it was just teenage, you know. We were very judgmental in our communities at that particular time in the early 80s, mid 80s. We would say, oh, you know, he's distracted TV and this and that, and he's um, you know, not behaving. So we thought it was his behavior and he would get into a lot of problems. But um, then it really got bad. And um, And then I, you know, I separated from my ex and I traveled to Ottawa and he came with me, as did my other two daughters. And he was so determined to turn over a new leaf and do school and work part time and everything, which he did. He valiantly 
uh, did go back and do, but um, his depression and these episodes of activity and then just flat out bedridden stages continued through his later teen years. So he was struggling in the early stages and even then I didn't know what it was that he was suffering from. I, I had no clue until I came across some literature that talked about OCD and obsessive compulsive disorder. I sent away for some literature and it was textbook descriptive of what my son was going through. When I shared it with him, he was also relieved to say, oh, so this is what's happening. And then I ran to the doctor here in Ottawa with that literature and Prozac was very new and touted to be very effective for disorders and depression. The doctor tried to put him on that, but uh, it didn't work. And he also wasn't receptive. And now by this time, he was in his mid to late teens. And so years went by. He struggled in school. And then he dropped out altogether and then struggled with jobs. He would start the job and then sleep in because of the depression. So that's how he was. And he was struggling with mental health issues before he committed a crime and was put into prison. And ever since he's been in prison, there have been very many episodes in crises where he has to be taken to hospital. There, it's not therapeutic for mentally ill people to be in prison. So for advocating about that, it brought me to John Howard Society and there, the crisis worker was a community member who had worked in corrections for many years, but now was with the Church Council on Justice and Corrections. They do wonderful work. They have research papers and support groups for people who suffer from mental illness. So member of that group, we came together at John Howard with two other moms. And we formed this group, a support group. That was in, we met first in December of 2010. And then we had our first formal meeting in uh, January of 2011. Yeah, long time. I wanted to take it back to what it was like visiting your son those first few times. But also, I kind of want to hear about how you found out that the services they were offering at the correctional institution, they weren't up to par with good services for his mental health. With all the moms, whoever you will talk to, people who have to visit their loved ones in prison, it's the most traumatic experience that we can experience as family members. First of all, when he was first taken into remand, we call it remand before they are tried and before they have their day in court and there is a hearing in front of the judge. That was at the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center. When I went there, and you can imagine somebody who has been very active in the community, and we've talked about inclusion, and we've talked about justice and equality. I go there at first, and first of all, the physical appearance of that prison is, you know, you read in horror books or books that talk about prison, not very pleasant. 
That was the initial visual and the huge loud sounds of the clanging doors, I'll remember. It just gives you goosebumps. Then when you go up to talk to the person, and it's usually a male guard who would be standing there, and it was like they were hard put upon to even talk to you, like you were so low in their opinion. They didn't treat you like a human being, you know. I would go there and I would give the name and then they would fumble. They didn't know how to pronounce the name and then they would ask you to spell the name out for you and particularly for people who are not the Anglo or French names. This was, I'm now talking about 2001, 2002. So it was very difficult. And it wasn't just me that happened to him. While I would be sitting there and there would be, say, a Somali mother who would get up. And it would literally take them five or ten minutes to get the name. So they would have to write it down and then they would look for the name and then they would make you sit. And so it was a very demeaning, very alienating, I would say. To your own society, you're saying, who am I? How did I get involved in something that is so negative and that is so contrary to being a Canadian? You don't think that a catastrophe like this can happen to you. So those initial and first encounters of the correctional system is through these facilities that we have to go through where the personnel that work there, the frontline workers, now I'm going back 20 years, mind you, in Ottawa Carlton, but it's not that things are fantastic now. I still hear this demeaning language or demeanor of the person who's standing there just taking your name and then calling you to go see your loved one inside. And it's, you know, you have to be searched. So this was the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center where my son hasn't been sentenced or tried yet. And that's the experience there. I was talked to very rudely many times. I would go there and I would have to listen to the mistreatment that he would get. He went there and he wasn't uh, delusional or paranoid when he went in there. But those delusions and paranoia started to build and build and build over the years to the extent that he was found unfit to stand trial. I remember that hearing they had before a jury and he, he had been hearing voices and he was talking to somebody who wasn't there. That deterioration happened, and I'm convinced of it, and the experts have written about it. It's the conditions of the confinement that result in this worsening of the mental health. And so is that where your advocacy began when you were realizing that these were the conditions that your son was going through? Exactly. So when at first I was alone, I didn't have any because, you know, the stigma and the shame and we didn't have Internet back then. I didn't have a computer at home. So you looked in the yellow pages or you looked in the directory to see what organizations were there. And I found an organization, John Howard Society, and I went there to ask for help and so they had a worker in the jail here in Ottawa so you would go through them and ask about your son and you know you ask them to go visit him 
But, you know, these aren't very well-funded organizations as well. So there's always a wait time. It isn't like immediately if I'm worried about my son, he has called and I'm hearing that he's feeling paranoid and he's hallucinating or something and he's feeling real fear because that's what would happen. He would call and he would say, I want you to change the locks on the door because there was another prisoner there who was terrorizing him. I have this all written and it's like it's written in my mind, all these things I'm telling you. But I have also, you know, would write these things down and then I would write to the lawyer or I would write to the warden or the superintendent of the jail. And then I would write to the psychiatrist. I would say he shouldn't be in jail. He's getting worse. Can he be put in a hospital? That has been my mantra since he was put in prison to transfer him to a psychiatric facility. But I've lost count on how many letters and how many people I have gone through with this plea. But it is a very rigid, very adversarial system that we don't have a voice. You know, even though we advocate, we write to the ministers and everything. Sometimes we feel heard if there is a compassionate ear that is listening or, you know, we may get a good response. I personally got a very good response. I think it was 2016, 2017, maybe even 2018, from Ralph Goodale. He was the Justice Minister of Public Safety. And I wrote to him and I told him that my son's mental health was deteriorating and he personally intervened and that's when they had a psychiatric reassessment. But then the government changed and I've never heard any follow-up of that. But, you know, during all this time that I'm talking about in OCDC, he was there for almost five years. He wasn't sentenced because he kept going back into the hospital. The judge ruled that he should be kept in the hospital because in prison he was deteriorating. So he was in from 2004 to 2005, and then there was a hearing, and then he was sentenced to life imprisonment. And uh, so he was sent to Kingston Penitentiary. But then that closed in uh, 2015, I'm thinking. And so then he was sent to a very bad place, maximum security prison, and he was put in solitary confinement there and his health again deteriorated. Then again, I appealed and then I finally heard about the correctional and investigator, you know, the OCI, the Office of the Correctional and Investigator, their uh, oversight body on correctional services, so I even approached them. So a couple of times uh, they have personally intervened because my son has been very ill and not eating and not sleeping and all those kind of things. So their suggestions and recommendations didn't have any effect. Yeah, at that time, I think this was in 2011. Before that, it was 2007 and 8 when he was thrown into solitary. He was allowed to call me after I don't know how many days, and he would say they would keep the light on 24 hours. 
His love of learning has continued during the course. He bought books and I sent him books and he has dictionaries. He was learning languages as that's his passion. When they would throw him into solitary, they would get all his stuff, throw it into garbage bags and put it away somewhere. It's called A and D. So he would be there with nothing a bare uh, mattress and uh, God only knows what situations. And he would be there for days and weeks. And he he knows by heart how many days he was there. The worst thing was in um, the Millhaven, the maximum security prison. That's where even I, I used to dread going to uh, visit him. Again, the visits were such a ordeal to go from here of course two and a half hour drive and then you had to make sure all your coins and all your things were clean and you go through um, a drug detection mechanism then you have to stand and let the drug dogs sniff you so it's a very intimidating and very scary situation but you have to go you have to see your loved one because they're your flesh and blood and just for their mental health and your own peace of mind you have to go and see them wow and and it doesn't take uh, a scientist to see how those solitary confinement those conditions are going to deteriorate someone's mental health like you said yes so the solitary confinement is now illegal here in canada 2019, there was a law passed, and so solitary confinement has been banned in Canada. So now we have structured intervention units. Well, that's another thing. But my son has never been to an SIU, so he is at a regional treatment center. In July of 2017, he was found unconscious, and uh, he had to be taken to hospital, and he was in a coma for nine days. And that had been a reaction to the injection that they had been giving him. So he was dehydrated. And uh, I had visited him a few days before that. He had told me he had been sick and he had been throwing up. He said, even the water I drink, I threw up. I was very concerned. I remember I bought him a ginger ale at the machine and he had that. And that was July 9th. And on July 15th, he was found unconscious. And because they had gone ahead in that condition, they had given him an injection at a dehydrated state. So he was in the hospital and I got a call. He said, we just want to let you know your son is here and he's in a coma. And so you can imagine how it must have been. My daughter and I got in the car and we went and we were in Kingston for nine days until he came to, he did revive, and he was sent back to Millhaven. And I asked why, because I was very perturbed that he was being sent back to maximum security, but they said, oh, we have 24-7 nursing care here at the regional treatment center. They had detected a blood clot in his leg, and they had put the intravenous, and it didn't go into the vein, the fluid had filled up his thick. In that condition, they sent him back to the prison. They didn't let him fully recover. After 24 hours of phone calls and requests, we got permission to see him. 
we would be only allowed, say, 20 minutes. And there were two armed guards beside him every every day. So obviously it cost the government a lot of money. They just hurried him back and put him back in Middlehaven. But he is back at Bath now and is struggling. It is a struggle from day to day. And he keeps himself busy with the courses that he takes. The course of the last three or four years, I think, they have accelerated the education component of it. So he's able to take courses in math and in sciences and Spanish, uh, other languages that he's learning. So keeps himself busy. Yeah, that's good. Does he still write at all, like when he was a kid? He wrote some rap songs and He didn't tell me this, but, you know, the chaplains that go and visit them, the faith chaplains, I had inquired and I just heard early this month that there is a chaplain that's assigned who I had written to. They said that, oh, we were there and we saw him and he said some rap songs. They're religious. He's a Muslim, and so he practices Islam, and so that has, in the you know past, got him a lot of antagonism from the guards or you know other inmates. But he's doing well. What does he think about the work that you're doing? I think he's very happy. And when we used to meet physically, the moms group, we would, at Christmas and New Year's, we would bring cards and we would write to each other's sons or brother or whoever it was. So he got a card from the moms and he wrote back. But it was my birthday earlier this month and he sent me a beautiful card. <laughs> so it just made me cry. He didn't write very much, but you know, with how whatever the cards say, it was said so beautifully. That's beautiful. And so uh, CPEP is also doing this event for Prisoners Justice Day where they're meeting at the Human Rights Memorial and they're going to have a few speakers. Are you going to be a part of that too? Yes, I am. I am. And another mom, her name is Pauline. We are both going to be just making a five minute each presentation. She's going to talk about her daughter's time at OCDC and I may just give an overall and just to give a perspective of what it is like to have a son in prison who suffers from mental health issues yeah Mm -hmm. and then I kind of wanted to ask you because you've been doing this work with moms for almost 13 years now I wanted to know what the changes have been like whether it's in policy or approach from the public what changes have you noticed in those almost 13 years I wish I had something positive to say to you, Lauren, about this question, but it just seems like going up the down escalator or, you know, how one mom put it, it's like moving mountains one teaspoon at a time. One of the moms has made us these uh, bookmarks with that saying, you know, moving mountains one teaspoon at a time. So the pace is very slow. And the main reason for this is because it's not a huge topic of appeal for the public. And the politicians are there to please the public. People want justice. People want tough on crime, it seems, so that uh, people who commit crime are not let off easily. But that they're never let off easily. People have such a little information of how things are done and how 
justice works. We have to look at the root causes of the crime that is committed too. Most of the people that you will encounter who are in jail, if you look at any of the statistics, what high percentage of the people that have ended up in jail have these social determinants that were the key factor in their ending up in prison. So there's poverty, there's addictions, there is learning disabilities, there is serious and untenable mental health issues. But, you know, we shut down all the psychiatric hospitals in the 80s in Ontario. There used to be, you had programs where the teenagers suffering from depression or anything, they would be taken in and there were programs there. But now this is a refrain with the moms and we hear it in the meetings is that their child, they were having trouble at school, so they were put into this program where, of course, they had to wait for months and weeks. And when they were in there, it was a 12-week program or it was a 10-week program. And then what? There's nothing. There's nothing. No follow-up. So time and time again, we hear the same story, that it was the system that failed them. And I have always said that in my uh, advocacy as well. And that was true of my son too. There is no funding for these programs. So parents like me are really hurting. Like these are the root causes that are pushing people and exactly. and result in these kinds of crimes that end up having people incarcerated. And mm-hmm. in your activism, the system should strive to address those root causes and make things better rather than punish these right. these people day mm-hmm. in, day out. Right. Well, there was clearly a need for this support group as it as you saw it grow and grow. There is, and you know, these are very grueling <laughs> meetings we have. Every meeting, we will have three or four new members join. Unless we have a speaker, we've invited a speaker to speak on a topic. We usually just welcome the newcomers and we don't ask them to speak right away unless they are feeling the need. We say that you are here if you want to listen in and then if you feel ready to speak because it's very emotional and very draining for them to be able to speak up. But uh, but recently the meetings have gone to three hours or over. Sounds like a lot of work, grueling like you said, um, but it is all about that support. Um, I think you had asked me before, you know, if if I feel any hope and if they, if I've seen any changes. 2010 to 2015, we lived through the tough on crime agenda of that previous government. But we still, I still used to write to the minister about my son. But in 2015, we were very hopeful for the federal systems. But can you imagine it's now 2023, but there are still some of those rules and laws that are still in the books. And that mentality of tough on crime, it's very hard to reverse. Even though there have been small strides, I won't say there haven't been. And then I just have a few more questions for you. But for somebody who might be listening to this conversation and if they were wondering how they could play a part in bettering the conditions for people who are in prisons when it comes to rehabilitation and reintegration, what would you recommend that they do? 
Being aware of the issues is a huge, huge first step. We need to be aware. Just being tough on crime is not the answer because the resources that we spend on correctional services, you need to be aware of what alternatives there are to putting people in jail indefinitely and throwing away the key. I know change is hard, but this is a change for the better for the people that are going to be coming out in the community anyways. You know, they're not all life sentences. These people are going to come back and they need to be rehabilitated. These are the things that you need to know and they could be your neighbor. They could be your friend. They could be your child's best friend. Be aware of what the alternatives are to criminal justice. If you reduce the poverty, if you have better mental health and physical health care and the marginalized communities, less homelessness, you cover those bases and then you will see that it will really make a difference. And so everyone should be on side with that. And finally, I wanted to know if you have any words for somebody that might be going through this experience on their own for the first time, where somebody that they love is being put away into the prison system. What would you say to them? I would say that, you know, look for support like moms and look for agencies that are doing wonderful work like the John Howard Society, Elizabeth Fry Society. And uh, it's, it's not the end of the world, although it seems like the end of the world to many of us who go through that initially. It is the biggest gift for the person who's going in jail is to have somebody who's caring outside. There are so many people in there that have no one they need canteen money. Like I send my son canteen money every month. Mothers do, but there are people who don't have that. And they have no one to visit. They have no one who comes to visit them. So find support in the community and just keep up the spirit because your spirits and your health, you will need all the, the good vibes that you can it's, it's hard, but you have to uh, strengthen your own resiliency in order to help them. Well, Farhad, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much, Farhad. That was my conversation with Farhat Rahman, co-founder of Moms and speaker at today's Prisoners' Justice Day vigil. And that's it for our discussion of Prisoners Justice Day on The Mosaic. Be sure to check out Lola's Fest on Sunday. Lola's Kitchen is hosting a one-of-a-kind Filipino hip-hop festival in Vanier from 11 to 5. There will be dancing, DJs, painting, and food. The event is free and family-friendly. Thanks for tuning in. You can find this episode and previous ones on chuo.fm. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we'll see you next week on CHUO 89.1 FM. <laughs>